Please remain standing for scripture read. Whoa, stay standing <laughs> for the reading of scripture. Uh, today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, the text known traditionally as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, wherever Christianity has taken root, you will find Christians gathered together to read, sing, learn, and pray using the Lord's Prayer. Uh, today, scripture is read for us by a student we support at Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, we're not going to mention his name because he had to flee for his life when his family found out that he had become a Christian. But when our Arabic brothers and sisters pray the Lord's Prayer, it sounds like this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we jump into the sermon this morning, a little bit of uh, housekeeping that I want to take care of. I think Josh, who did the announcements, has left the room. So please, everyone go down and write down pear as a fruit of the spirit. Uh, I think it'd be hilarious when the missionaries are like, wait, what? The whole church said what? Ah, well, anyway, I'm going to do it, so feel free to join me. <laughs> well, hey, um, I don't know if I've introduced myself. My name's Pastor Joey, and, or well, Joey's my name, Pastor's a title, and uh, I've met most of you. Some of you I haven't, of course. I'd love for you to come up and say hi uh, and introduce yourself after. Um, if you haven't met me, you, you probably haven't heard uh, or, or realized how much of a adversarial relationship I enjoy having uh, with my wife. So in the spirit of that, I wanted to tell a story about what happened this morning. I woke up, she likes it, so just, it's fine. Uh, but I woke up early this morning like I usually do on Sundays to kind of read through my sermon, try to figure out how I was going to say everything I wanted to say without keeping you here for an hour and a half. Uh, and around 6.30 or so, I started hearing, you know, the noises of a house waking up, the rumbling and rustling from the room uh, above me. So I came upstairs to uh, greet her lovingly, as I would every morning, offer a cup of coffee, and uh, heard voices, or a voice at least, coming from the bedroom. Now, Jenna enjoys this uh, sort of conversational video texting app thing that I don't really understand. Um, so I figured out she's recording a, a video message for someone, but um, I, wasn't, I, I didn't know who she was talking to. But whatever was going on, it was obvious that uh, from her conversation, she was defending herself against some, I don't know, some slander or something. It, it was, I don't want to mince words, but it, was, it, was, it sounded very selfish and self-centered, what I heard. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, you know, a real sanctification issue going on. Uh, what I heard was her saying this, me, 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 me. And she was obviously emotionally invested in what she was saying as her voice was rising and falling as she said these syllables successively. Uh, there was a pause. I don't know what the person on the other end of the line said, but then I heard it again, even more stridently. Her, her voice even went up a note or so. And she said, me, 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 me. Again, it's like, I don't know what she's talking about, but obviously she's talking about herself. A third time it happens, even more emotionally, as she's telling whoever what is going on. And then it got weird. Mommy made me mash my M&Ms. <laughs> I guess she was getting ready for worship practice. 
All right, obviously she wasn't actually talking to, uh, about herself. Uh, she was doing vocal warm-up exercises, which if I had any ability when it came to singing, I would have actually tried to sing it for you. But um, I don't, and I can't, and I won't. So, uh, <laughs> but as I came into the room, it just made me laugh as I'm thinking about the topic for the sermon this morning. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, not mine. But really, how many of us think that's true? Or maybe a better question. How many of us live like that's true? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, not mine. Of course, the default orientation of our hearts is to say mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for as long as I can keep it up. Me, 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 me. And then we come together on a morning like this and we find ourselves reciting the Lord's Prayer together and we get to that line, the closing line of the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I'll bet actually if you were following along in the Bible that you brought with you or the one that you found underneath the seat in front of you, uh, those words aren't printed in your Bible. Unless you've got a, an older version like the King James, uh, those words aren't there after verse 13 of Matthew 6. They're not printed in Luke 11 either. Actually, your, your Bible may even contain a little note down at the bottom of the page that says something like, these words are not found in the earliest manuscripts. And they're not wrong. It's safe to say that the words I'm preaching this morning are not in the Bible. Or at least said that too strongly. They're not in the Bible right here. We've been in this series we're calling Teach Us to Pray. This is the last Sunday of it as we, we wrap this up. But every week we've asked Jesus to do for us the same thing his disciples asked him to do, teach us to pray. And we've gotten to the very end of the prayer, the end of the traditional formulation of the prayer, and we've, we've gotten to this uh, point where we now have an opportunity to be taught by Jesus how to pray, but to be taught by Jesus through the practice of the early church. We actually have old writings from, uh, from the earliest times that the church was writing, not just passing around scripture, but writing about how they conducted their services. We've got these uh, accounts that show us that almost from the very beginning, as soon as the church began meeting formally, they would use the Lord's Prayer, recite the Lord's Prayer, and always add some variation on this theme to the end. Yours is the power and the glory. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Yours is the majesty and the kingdom and the power. Things like that. It was always added to the end of the prayer. Scholars think this is probably because uh, no good Jewish convert to Christianity would ever end a prayer with a petition. They would never say, here's what I need, okay, thanks, bye, and amen. If you, once you said, you know, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, you can't just stop there. You've got to come back around to praise. So some sort of doxological statement, some sort of words of praise and words and praise of God's glory uh, were added on to the end. Actually, it became so much a part of the early church's practice that probably some later scribes writing down uh, scripture to pass it on are like, hey, they forgot. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory and wrote it in. Now, the church didn't, they didn't make this up. They didn't create a whole new idea that, oh, maybe we should praise God for his kingdom and his power and his glory. They took what they had learned from the Jewish scriptures, from the Psalms and other places, and adapted it, uh, kind of used a variation on it to fit their prayer as they got together as a church and prayed. So where this prayer comes from then, in one sense, is all of the Bible. 
In another sense, this prayer comes from all of the church, as the church throughout history has prayed in this way. But more specifically, it's probably adapted from 1 Chronicles 29. I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Chronicles 29, uh, verses 10 through 13, and you're welcome to turn there and kind of follow along if you'd like. Um, This is the only time I'm going to reference this text in the sermon as we read it, Um, but as we kind of go from here for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to preach on the words kingdom, power, and glory. I kind of don't know what verse to tell you to look at to see them. Uh, because it's not printed in your Bible in Matthew uh, uh, 6, and it's not in that order in 1 Chronicles 29. So uh, hopefully you understand what I'm saying as, as we preach this. Uh, we're preaching scripture uh, through the lens of the early church. But 1 Chronicles 29. In the story of Israel's history, we're at this point where David has said he wants to build the temple, a temple to the God of Israel. He knows that he's not going to, to be able to do it. It's not going to happen in his lifetime It's going to be left to his son, Solomon, but he says he can at least raise the funds to to begin the construction. He can at least kind of get the funds together so he's got something to give to Solomon when he goes to build the temple. So they had a capital campaign. They brought in all the donations. They've had more than they needed, and so they held a celebration service, and David got up and prayed at that service. He said this, 1 Chronicles 29.10, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. The tradition of taking a number of words that describe who God is and and kind of stringing them together saying yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory, the majesty, the rule uh, is a habit that followers of God have gotten into um, since as far back at least as 1 Chronicles 29. So the early church adapted it and began to use this phrase, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory at the end of the Lord's Prayer every time they prayed it so that the Lord's Prayer then would begin in adoration and thanksgiving, turn to confession and petition, and come back around to praise. If we're going to start with praise of God, we need to end with praise of God. And these three words, as we pray them, as we pray them ourselves, as we pray them together as a church, each of these three words becomes a declaration of who God is and a confession of who we are not. Yours is the kingdom, not mine. Yours is the power, not mine. Yours is the glory not mine. And as we pray these words, as we confess these beliefs, the repeated prayer and confession works within us to free us from the very human temptation to define ourselves, to find our value, to find our worth in our kingdom, our power, our glory. In other words, in our accomplishments, in our abilities, in our reputations. Kingdom, power, and glory to God alone or to God first frees us 
to be citizens of the kingdom of God and to be human in the fullest sense of the word. Kingdom, power, and glory. Accomplishment, ability, reputation. Let's jump in. First is kingdom. Yours is the kingdom, not mine. Now, earlier in this series, you may remember back when we were uh, preaching through the part of the prayer where we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come. We talked about kingdoms as authority structures. You may remember every kingdom has a king, a ruler. Every kingdom has a people, those who are in subjection, those who follow the ruler. And and every kingdom has an area of rule or an area in which their rule is valid, in which they can actually get done what they say. One aspect of kingdom we didn't talk about then is this idea that a kingdom rightly established brings order. It brings wholeness. It brings rightness to the world. To build a kingdom is to do what's natural to all of us as being humans, as being made in the image of God, to take the chaos and the raw materials in the world around us and bring it into some sort of order. Taking chaos and bringing it into order is absolutely necessary for survival, not least in a fallen world, which seems bent on our destruction, but also when your mom is shouting at you for the 10th time, clean your room. Take the chaos, turn it into order, she'll be happy, you'll survive. We all go through life, it's a human drive, taking the disorganized stuff and the disunity disunified stuff around us and bringing it into order, bringing it into unity. All I'm trying to say is that all of us build kingdoms. Every single one of us is building a kingdom. We're all using the power and the ability that we have to maneuver, manipulate, rearrange the circumstances and the situations around us into that version that we think is most conducive to our flourishing, uh, into the sort of set of affairs that we think is going to give us the highest chance of achieving the life that we have pictured for ourselves, even if we aren't really aware of what that picture is. We're all building a kingdom. Have you ever thought about how much of your energy you spend just rearranging all the stuff around you and the people around you and the opinions of people around you? I mean, how many times have we sort of subtly woven our influence into this situation over here or said a few words into some circumstances over here to try to get the people over there to change the people over here so that they'll change the people over there so our mother-in-law, mothers-in-law won't bother us anymore or for whatever reason. How often, how much time do we spend uh, influencing and maneuvering and arranging the ideas and the people and the attitudes and the opinions around us? We call it leadership. It's really kingdom building with us as the king. Or, or maybe, maybe your kingdom building efforts are more in the, the relational sphere, moving from group to group, kind of subtly raising your status in one group with a few words, subtly taking or lowering the status of a rival in another group, uh, working influence, building a kingdom 
with you as the king. Of course, we can do the same thing in the financial world. We can do the same thing in our offices. We can do the same thing in our homes, in our schools. We can do it at the domestic level. We could do it at the national level. It's, it's what we do. We're, we're kingdom builders. It's who we are as humans, which means kingdom building is, is part of who we are as created in the image of God. Right, to take the raw material of chaos and turn it into something valuable is a very God-like thing to do. But when we are at our most God-like, that's when the temptation is strongest to think that we are God and forget that there's one higher than us. Kingdoms aren't all bad. They're necessary. They're beautiful when they're done right, when they're done well part of us imaging God when we fix what's broken, unify what's disorganized, organize what's chaotic. Um, That's when the temptation comes in. You know, you could think about the relationship between the kingdom of God and my sort of own little kingdom as pretty similar to the relationship between my house and my rule of it, such as it is, and my daughter and her friends playing house. Right at the end of the day, when Anna's friends go home and everything they've built dissolves into dreams, all that's left the next day is the kind of person she became while at play, leading and playing house. And at the end of our lives and at the end of all things, our kingdoms, what we built, will dissolve in favor of the kingdom of God, and all that will be left is the kind of people we became as we were playing house with our own little kingdoms here. When we pray these words, yours is the kingdom, not mine, we're reminding ourselves that our kingdom is not the ultimate kingdom. Our kingdom is not the last one there will ever be. Our kingdom is not the first and the greatest. It's not the one that's going to live forever. Our kingdoms, everything we're building here will eventually dissolve. But there is a kingdom that lasts. There's a kingdom that's greater. And every time we pray, yours is the kingdom, not mine, we're reminding ourselves there is a kingdom, there is a king who is greater than me, who relativizes my accomplishments against his own relativizes, meaning gets things back into perspective. Have you ever noticed that it only takes a, well, let me put it this way. You can take something very, very small and use it to block out something very, very big as long as that very, very small thing is very, very close to your eye. Or you remember the scene in Apollo 13 where Tom Hanks is blocking out the the moon with his thumb? Which is bigger? The thumb, yes, I think I heard you rumbling that. Yes, but because it's closer, it eclipses the thing that is actually larger and has greater pull. When our kingdom, when our little attempts to build the world we want for ourselves around us, when that becomes the thing that is closest to our hearts, we can't help but have it block out and eclipse everything else. Until we pray, yours is the kingdom, not mine. And the gravitational pull of God's kingdom begins to reorder things until we see his kingdom as first and ours 
a second. Yours is the kingdom. We're taught to pray. Yours is the kingdom and yours is the power. Yours is the power, not mine. And you know, when we use that phrase, yours is the power, I guess what we mean by that depends a lot on what we mean by power. I think most of the time we hear the word power and we immediately think authority, right? Control, the kind a politician has. The sort of uh, ability from on high to say, um, this is what you must do, go and do it. Power, control. That's part of it. The word contains within it a few, different, uh, a few different shades of meaning, facets of meaning, depending on the context. And here, by just saying yours is the power, uh, we're taught to leave the word open enough that we recognize God's power in multiple different ways. First being that control. Yes, God is in control. That dovetails nicely with the idea of kingdom. God is the king of the kingdom that is his. But it also leaves some room within the word for us to recognize that there's more to this idea of power than just controlling things. Control is the ability to maneuver and manipulate others into doing what you want. Another facet of this word is the ability to do the thing yourself. Uh, maybe this will help. So tonight, uh, lunch, I don't know what you guys do for dinner, like for the evening meal on a Sunday. It's usually popcorn and apple slices for us. But let's say lunch, you want to, you want to put a good meal on the table uh, for your family or for your friends. And so you've got a couple of options. How are you going to do this? A couple different ways you could go. You could exercise your power your control, how you can manipulate others into getting done what you want done. And you can take uh, the money you have in your pocket, and you can go to Whole Foods, and you can buy an already prepared and warm meal, take it home, put it on the table, and say, there, I have made dinner. Enjoy. Be grateful. Right? Or you could go to the grocery store, you could buy all the groceries, you could take them home, and you could exercise your ability, facet of power, to do all the rearranging of all those raw materials yourself and make them into the dinner that you'll present to your family or to your friends. See the difference? Control, you get, or, yeah, control, you get others to do what you want done. Uh, ability, you're doing it yourself. Now, the funny thing about power, whether it's the control sense or the ability sense, is that we very quickly and very easily get offended or feel judged when anyone has control or has ability different or greater than ours and exercises it in a way different than we would. Even as I was telling, the, like, go to Whole Foods, buy the, buy the food story, like, I could see some of you quietly slipping on your judgy pants. You're like, buy a meal from Whole Foods of all places? Who in their right mind would spend that kind of money when they can just make the meal themselves? Admit it, some of you thought it, you're laughing nervously right now. Others of you, of course, as I got to the second half of it and talked about rearranging all the raw materials and making the meal yourself, you're like, another person making me feel guilty for not being a good cook, for buying food for my family that's already prepared instead of preparing it myself. I'm tired of feeling judged. Okay, less, judging by the nervous laughter, there's less of you uh, in that realm in here. But isn't, isn't it interesting how... Whenever somebody begins to imply that there's another way of exercising power, control, or ability, we start to get a little offended. Why would they do it that way? That's not right. 
when Jen and I were going through premarital counseling before we got married, um, our, the pastor who was doing, I guess that's why it's called premarital counseling, isn't it? It was before we got married. Um, the pastor who was doing our counseling told us, he's like, I've, I've got a simple little phrase for you. If you don't remember anything else, just remember this. Say it to yourself as many times a day as you can remember it. Say it to one another. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. That was huge for me. I have used that on Jenna so many times. <laughs> it's been amazingly helpful for me in our marriage. But our, our power, our ability, and our exercise of it is so tied into who we feel we are. Have you noticed that? Especially, especially as that ability ties into the kind of kingdom we're creating for ourselves. You know, when we're trying to uh, ar arrange the world around us in a way that is, that is pleasing and conducive to flourishing and has all the forks facing in the right direction so they just get clean the first time and I don't have to clean them later, uh, when we are exercising our little kingdom, you know, our home, our dishwasher, our whatever, when we're exercising our power in that kingdom, man, it's offensive to have somebody come along and say, mm, that's not the right way to do that. Let me show you a better way. For $50, by the way, uh, Pastor Tom will come over to your house and teach you the correct way to put forks in the dishwasher if, uh, for instance, you need him to do that sort of counseling on your spouse. Um, it's cheap. It's worth it. He's on call. 50 bucks, it's a great deal, isn't it? If you could fix your spouse forever for $50, who wouldn't do that? Yeah, now the laughter is getting really nervous. Um, here's what I'm trying to say. When you have an ability or you have some control and someone else has a different one or the same one, only better, it's hard not to get offended. It's hard not to feel a little judged because we are so wired to identify ourselves with our abilities, to identify ourselves with our accomplishments. And so to, to say out loud, yours is the power, not mine, is a pretty offensive statement. Very few of us naturally want to say to someone else, yours is the power, unless of course, in us saying that becomes a power play in which we may retain power by pretending to give them power, but that's, that's for the counseling office, so let's, we won't get into that now. When we pray, when we come together and pray, yours is the power, not mine, we are reminding ourselves that there is someone out there who has more control, more ability, ultimate control, ultimate ability, and it's not me. And yet most of us, myself included, go through life thinking, I'm the one who has to solve it. I'm the only one with the power to make it right. We put on our Superman underpants and we fly right in. Because somebody is wrong and it's time to fix it. I'm here. And then we're reminded to pray. Yours is the power, not mine. Now, the idea, of course, that someone else has more power and has more control, has more ability than I do, is either a completely terrifying or an entirely comforting idea. 
all depending on the character of the person who wields that power. J.I. Packer was an Anglican theologian uh, writing on the Lord's Prayer. He described God's power this way. He said, power is the actual mastery that God's rule shows, not then the naked arbitrary power like that of a tornado or a rogue elephant or a dotty dictator. But he calls God's power unconquerable beneficence. In other words, unstoppable goodwill. God's power is an unconquerable beneficence, triumphantly fulfilling purposes of mercy and loving kindness to us and to all men. So when we pray and give power to God, when we say yours is the power, not mine, and, and, and we pray it with our hands open, we're saying, I, I'm not the one with ultimate power, but I know who is, and I know what he's like. His is the power uncomfortable beneficence. And so as we pray this, yours is the power, we free ourselves from the temptation to define ourselves by our ability, our ability to make a dent in the world, our ability to build our kingdom. We say, God, yours is the kingdom, not mine. Yours is the power, not mine. And third, the church teaches us to pray, yours is the glory not mine. Now, glory shows up uh, in our English Bibles all throughout both Testaments, but it translates different words with sort of different ideas underneath them. Uh, In the Old Testament, glory tends to translate a word that means heaviness or weightiness. Gravitas might be another word for it. In the New Testament, glory translates a word more like radiance or splendor. Uh, an unalloyed brightness, a, a, a light that's too piercing to look at directly. Actually, in the New Testament, it's the, the Greek word doxa, which is where we get words like doxology or doxological. When we sing the doxology, we're singing words in praise of glory, of God's glory. Now, we don't use the word glory and describe it to people anymore in English. We use it primarily in a religious context, but a word that we do use and describe to people quite often that means roughly the same thing is the word reputation. Reputation. You could define a person's reputation as the weight of their presence when they're absent, right? A reputation is the weight a person has even when they're not there. Or the the visibility of the person's presence, even when their physical presence is absence. Reputation carries the same ideas that glory does when we think about how it affects us, even when the person is not there. That's why we use phrases like, you know, his reputation preceded him. Because his reputation carries weight. Even when he's not here, it is. And a person's reputation, I mean, it's a collection of ideas about a person. Their reputation and the weightiness it has depends uh, largely on what their, you know, the content of their reputation, what they're known for. And we often take what we know of another person, we take their reputation, and then we sort of take that as the last word about that person and define them according to it person's reputation, as far as we can tell, is exactly who they are. We can't see the inside. We don't know any difference. Now, managing your reputation, 
having a, an understanding of how others perceive you is such a big deal in the social media age that spawned a whole new industry, reputation management. You know, these are companies that'll clean up your reputation online, uh, you or a business, for a fee. They generally work by burying everything negative onto the second page of search results by putting out a whole ton of positive stuff. And so for a fee, they can, they can clean it up. But I was thinking about that earlier this week. I don't know that I need to pay a reputation management company, not because I have a prob problem with my reputation, but because that's basically what I do all day, every day, manage my reputation. It's basically what all of us do all day, every day. Have you ever tried going a day without talking about yourself at all? Maybe going uh, through lunch, let's say, without using the word I. Some of you are thinking, me can do that. <laughs> me can do that real well. <laughs> do you think you could go a whole day without talking about yourself at all? Without, without burning a little bit inside when you realize that somebody out there has a wrong idea about you? Without sort of churning awake at night thinking, how do I right this wrong? How do I correct their misperception? How do I, how do I make sure they understand who I really am? It's almost like we're jealous for our glory as we manage our reputations. We all feel this need to manage who we think other people think we are. This sense that uh, if, if someone doesn't see me correctly, I need to fix it. I need to make sure they, they, they can see my accomplishments, they know my kingdom. And make sure that they, uh, they can see my abilities, they know my power. I want to make sure that they see my glory, that they praise my glory, that they know my reputation, that I, my reputation precedes me when I go anywhere. Most of us spend the majority of our lives talking about the thing that is most important to us, which is ourselves. And just because I'm talking about it doesn't mean I've got it figured out either. I just talked about myself three times. Four, if you count that one. When we pray, yours is the glory, yours is the reputation, not mine, we're saying, God, the only splendor, the only weightiness, the only reputation that matters is yours, not mine. Mine needs to be relativized in light of yours. Uh, mine needs to be not pushed down or suppressed. It just needs to be seen for what it really is in the presence of one whose glory and whose reputation is so much greater than ours. When we pray, yours is the glory, we're reminding ourselves that there's someone out there whose glory shines more than ours, whose presence makes more of an impact than our own. When we pray, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, not mine, we're saying you know, what, what John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. Yours is the glory, yours is the power, yours is the kingdom not mine. And a beautiful thing happens when we pray these words. Now, as, as we've gone through this, hopefully it's been clear 
that I, I haven't overplayed the negative side of this. It's not necessarily wrong to build a kingdom. Like I said, it, it's like God. It's how he's created us to be, to organize chaos and bring it together. It's not necessarily wrong to exercise power, control, or ability. We all have abilities, and we all have a certain level of control by the position that God has put us in. It's not wrong to exercise it. It's not even necessarily wrong to care about your reputation, your glory, because in large part, your reputation is just the sort of group perception of how well you're exercising your abilities in building the kingdom. The problem comes when our kingdom, our power, our glory is so much larger for ourselves than God's kingdom, God's power, God's glory. We forget he's the one who gave it all to us in the first place, and we think, well, this is where, this is where everything stops, right here with me. But when we pray this prayer, when we pray this prayer and we pray it together and we pray it repeatedly and we learn over the course of our lifetimes just what it means to tell God his is the kingdom and the power and the glory that it's not mine. When we, when we pray this prayer, we are slowly, slowly, slowly freed from the overwhelming and anxious need to constantly be working, constantly be striving, managing our glory, building our kingdoms, displaying our abilities so that maybe if we get just enough kingdom, just enough power, just enough glory for ourselves, maybe, maybe someone will love us for it. If we can just prove we're good enough, we can build enough, we can shine enough, maybe somebody will love us for it. Now, that, that sounds exhausting to you. It's because it is. As long as we're the kings of our own little kingdoms, managing our own reputations, jealously guarding our glory, we'll be exhausted all the time with the effort of it. As long as I'm king, my kingdom is under assault. As long as I'm the one with the power, my power is always questioned. As long as I'm the one whose glory matters, my glory never shines quite bright enough. If we're really going to dethrone ourselves from the throne of our hearts, we're going to have to replace our own kingdom power and glory with the kingdom power and glory of another, uh, the one whose kingdom shines so much brighter than our own. Not a kingdom that we just acquiesce to because it comes in in power. That's not enough. You can be kneeling with your body while standing on the inside. We need a kingdom that captures our hearts. And to find a kingdom that captures our hearts, we have to go where we always go. We have to go to the cross. We have to go to the cross to see Jesus Christ in the very act of showing us what a true kingdom and a true power and a true glory looks like. Because it looks nothing like the world around us. Stanley Hauervoss was formerly a professor of ethics at Duke Divinity School. He said, any kingdom that defines glory in terms of a bloody cross is obviously peculiar. And on the cross, not, not done in the world, not done in the way the world's kingdoms show power, all done up in marble to look eternal. But on the cross, on a bloody cross, we see Jesus giving up what the world says is true power and true glory. 
in the powerless power of the cross, the inglorious glory of his death, and then his resurrection. I mean, we see Jesus giving up his kingdom, his power, and his glory so that we can enter into God's and finally rest. Finally stop. Finally belong. I've done enough pastoral counseling with different ages to know that most of us, uh, anytime we're in a group larger than ourselves, we're in the room thinking, if, if these people just knew, if they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't want me here. We look, at, we look around a room like this and we think, boy, everybody looks like they're getting it. Everybody looks like they belong, like they're loved, like they're accepted. How come I'm the only one who feels left out? Like I'm not getting it. And the entirety of our lives becomes a, a battle to build a kingdom large enough, a power great enough, a glory bright enough to earn for ourselves that belonging, that acceptance into something bigger, something bigger than ourselves that we feel like we have to belong to. And God is telling us, the church is telling us through this prayer, you're never going to get there on your own. There's only one way. One way to finally come to the point where you don't just feel accepted, but you know that you are. Not the version of yourself that you're, you're doctoring and putting filters on and putting out there for everyone to see, whether that's online or in person. We all do it. Not the version of yourself that you put out there for public consumption and then worry that, well, maybe they just like the public version of myself and not the real me, but the real you. God says, in my kingdom, my power, my glory... I see all of it. I know all of it. I know you deeper than you know yourself. And I'd love you more than you can ever imagine. When we pray, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, we finally find ourselves in a place where, well, John Calvin, the Protestant reformer writing on this 500 years ago, he said, we pray this and we come to the place of tranquil repose is just a way of saying rest. Finally. I don't have to worry about building my kingdom. It's not the one that matters. It's not going to last. I don't have to worry about defending my power. It doesn't matter. It's weak anyway. There's one who's stronger. I don't have to worry about defending my glory, my reputation. My glory is nothing compared to God's. And as we pray these words and confess these words over and over and over again, that the kingdom, the power, and the glory do not belong to us, oh, degree by degree, we are freed from the temptation to define ourselves by our accomplishments, our abilities, our reputation, and can finally work for the extension of God's kingdom, not our own. We can finally work in God's power, not our own. Oh, we can finally live and work for God's reputation and his glory, not our own. And so we pray every day, every week, every time we get together, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Not mine. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have given us a gift beyond compare by giving us 
rest. Rest in your kingdom. Rest in your power. Rest in your glory. God, we thank you that as we have learned from this prayer that the church has taught us to come back to praise. We do praise you with these these words in praise of your glory, this doxology. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Help us as we pray to come back to praise in the same way that our life, our lives will one day end all petitioning, end all confession, end all pleading. And all that will be left is the happy joy of giving you praise. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.